The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy, an open access tool based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide to illustrate the cost-optimal 100% renewable energy system. And stick with us to the very end of the show. We've got a bonus episode, and we're going to hear how this tool is helping us understand how to spend stimulus dollars on the clean energy transition. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow puts the grow in solar plus storage. It's a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. It's delivered 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 120 gigawatts across the globe. Learn more about its products and cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by SeaPower. SeaPower and its team of energy experts are back with a webinar series aimed to help organizations make sense of the chaos and optimize their energy use and energy spend in 2021. SeaPower's hour-long webinar series features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to lower energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to register. Green Tech Media Podcasts. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, net zero pledges are becoming common for utilities, but a huge number of them are failing to decarbonize on a time frame that truly matters. We'll talk about a damning new analysis of utility climate goals. Then, the urgency of a national clean energy standard, and the argument that this is what voters voted for. What are the new political pieces in place to get a nationwide target? One of my favorite experts will be with us to unpack both those stories. And last, the bombshell news that General Motors will only sell zero-emission cars by 2035. How hard is it to turn around a company born and raised in internal combustion? A cautionary tale from Volkswagen offers some answers. Let's turn to... Two people who are with me to throw caution to the wind. It is Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hello. How's it all going? It's great. We had some snow this week. It's sunny today, but um, it feels like winter. Jigger Shaw is there in Bethesda, Maryland. Is the snow outside your window? It is. But what's interesting is my son came home from preschool and lectured me about uh, Punxsutawney Phil and how he saw like his shadow and so we're gonna have six more weeks of winter and he like really believed it like it's it's Santa Claus level belief so you know ah the innocent days. wait that's not real we always do he we always get six more weeks of winter he never doesn't see his shadow he is perpetually in fear what kind of myth about the groundhog are you talking about I thought that was all real <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But like, you know, he's so invested into it, right? That that's what's great to see, you know. Jigger is our co-host and the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. And I am so pleased to be joined by a good friend and esteemed expert on the electricity sector and the energy transition, Dr. Leah Stokes. She has been on the show numerous times before. She is a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a collaborator on the podcast, A Matter of Degrees, which uh, we've been putting together over the last year. Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you, Stephen. Yeah, we have our own podcast now, guys. You better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good one too it's good i don't see any snow out your window there in california it looks wonderful no it's pretty much always sunny in california uh and unfortunately often dry we did get rain finally in the last couple of weeks because we are as usual kind of in a drought situation thanks to climate change many utilities are on record with climate goals we've talked about 
many of them on this show, but those goals mean nothing if the companies don't take the necessary actions to meet them. Simple enough, right? Leah and her two co-authors, John Romankowitz and Kara Badaroff, sorry if I didn't get your names right, uh, set out to quantify whether utilities are doing just that. And they looked at the 50 dirtiest utilities, the ones that have the most remaining coal in their power mix. And they dug deep into dense documents. Catherine knows these kinds of documents very well, the integrated resource plans. Those plans tell us what a utility is planning to build and rely on. So it gets beyond these wonderful press releases on climate targets and actually gets us into what their intentions are. What's the phrase here? Don't tell me what you value. Show me your budgets and I'll show you what you value. So that's essentially what Leah is getting to right here. And they found an enormous gap between utilities' current practices and their stated climate aims. So... Leah, you built a scoring system. The final numbers are sobering. You looked at these 50 utilities that have the most remaining coal-fired power plants, and of those, 33 have made climate commitments. But those commitments, it seems like mostly don't seem to matter yet. What did you find? Yeah, so this report was written uh, with the Sierra Club, and John and Kara really did so much of the hard lifting here. They dug through all those IRP plans and put together data from climate plans, really dug into a lot of difficult-to-find documents from all over the place. Because remember, these utilities operate in different places. They have different rules. It's complex to put this all together. And what we found is that the utilities are not moving fast enough. They have goals, but oftentimes those goals are all the way out to 2050. And when we look at their plans for the next decade, there's way too much new gas that's being proposed, not enough planned uh, and committed coal retirements, and not enough clean energy that's being planned to be built in the next decade. So, for example, we have this pretty simple figure which shows the current coal and gas generation uh, from 2019. And if you look at it, they're only planning to build in the next decade, one fifth of that current generation in clean power. So we have a lot further to go if we really want to clean up our electricity system. So as you said, you broke it into three parts. It's are they retiring coal fast enough? How much gas are they building? And how much clean energy are they building? What's the biggest problem you think out of those three? It's like your three children. You can't pick a favorite, Stephen. They're all <laughs> critical, right? You got to get rid of coal. I mean, it's so important. And here's the thing. I think the, uh, was it the Next Era CEO just the other day said publicly there's not a single economic coal plant in this country? Wow, that was quite the statement. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of coal plants that operate today that are losing money and costing customers money, let alone costing them their health or costing us our climate stability. So coal, so important. But really, the climate fight going forward is going to be a lot about gas. If we build a lot of new gas infrastructure and we continue to have massive amounts of methane leakage, I mean, that will be terrible for the climate math, as Bill McKibben likes to say. So gas is a big part of it. And then clean energy. We've got to be building it fast enough so that we can be cleaning up our electricity system at the pace and scale that's necessary. So they're all really interlinked, I would say. Um, they, you know, if you're not going to build new gas, you will be building more clean. And you see that, for example, with the Northern Indiana Power Service Company, NIPSCO, which is actually our, our number two top performing utility. They have plans to retire all their coal they're not building new gas, and they've got lots of plans to build clean power. So unsurprisingly, they are an A-plus student. 
Well, I don't know if they're quite an A plus student. I think they got an 82. So I mean, isn't that like B minus? We got a grading scale, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's a curve. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is um, difficult, I think, when you read reports like this to wrap your brain around, is it when you think about the decarbonization effort and you read all the different studies that many people have done at this point, it actually requires systems thinking. So it's not actually replacing you know, uh, coal and natural gas with wind and solar. It's actually replacing the way the grid works and the way that the grid operators operate the system and the way that the transmission operators operate the transmission lines. And that's the DER stuff, the distributed generation stuff, all the things that we talk about. And so, I mean, how much of this is just that there are some people who just can't wrap their brain around how this would work. And so when they think about more wind and solar, they think, well, the only way to balance it out so when you know there's less sun and less wind is to have a lot of natural gas capacity on standby because that's the only way our brain works as opposed to them being anti the uh, decarbonization effort. Well, I think that's a great question. You know, I think that there is some cultural change going on at utilities right now. And, you know, when I criticize utilities, I'm certainly not criticizing everybody who works for them, the rank and file membership. I think there's a lot of people who are trying to push in the right direction, including within the utility industry. And there are some who are seeing the change and and being leaders in that. Right now, it's like 99% of the power in Colorado is on track for 80% clean by 2030. So if an entire state can be committed to that kind of level of ambition, and remember 80% by 2030 is directly on the pathway to 100% by 2035. If we can see that level of ambition from some leaders in the industry, I think that that can start to change how other parts of the industry think about these issues. And so I think there's a cultural shift going on within the utility industry right now. And we really, really got to push to make that happen faster because, you know, climate change is not going to wait. Yeah, Leanne, and I feel like we need to do this all the way down into the subsidiary level because, for example, Entergy has made these big pronouncements about how they want to go to net zero. But if you are involved in an IRP in Arkansas or Mississippi or Louisiana, they will say, oh, well, that's our parent company. That's not us. Um, And then they will put out data that just it has numbers that come that are old, outdated, that come from a variety of resources and different, you know, in states that have nothing to do with what they're doing in that particular state. And um, I just, I just feel like, as Jigger said, the systems thinking thing is really important, but also just the notion that the answer to every modeling tool isn't to build a natural gas plant. That is so insightful, Catherine, and it's definitely been my experience as well. Take, for example, Southern Company, right? They are one of the organizations we look at here. And of course, they have subsidiaries like Alabama Power and um, Georgia Power. And it's interesting because the same dynamic is playing out there where technically Southern Company has a 2050 goal. But when the IRPs are done in those states, like in Georgia, their subsidiary companies say, oh, well, we don't have to follow that. That's our parent corporation. And 
if you have electric utilities saying those things, then how can we possibly claim that these goals have any meaning or that they're worth the paper that they're written on? Because the goals have to actually be implemented in planning decisions. And so, yeah, our report breaks this down both at the operating company level as well as the parent company level. And I think you're so right that part of the problem is that these parent companies are making goals, but the operating companies are kind of wiggling their way out of it. And they are continuing to propose massive amounts of new gas. 22 operating companies, these utilities, scored zero out of 100. So (laughs) name some names here. I mean, who are the worst players? Some of the worst performers are the subsidiary companies of Southern Company and Duke. That is probably not surprising to people, but some of the companies that get zero are Alabama Power, Duke Energy Florida, Duke Energy Progress, Entergy Texas. Um, You know, these are probably Entergy Louisiana. Entergy Louisiana is the same one that did that astroturfing thing on that gas plant at the... um, uh, New Orleans City Council that I talk about all the time. So, you know, there's some bottom of the barrel folks out there that are really not making commitments. And the irony is they have goals. A lot of these companies have corporate pledges. And we're just trying to show here that you have to put your money where your mouth is, right? Uh, You can't just greenwash and say, I'm doing something, but then never back it up with investments. And, you know, it isn't all bad news. Some utilities that I've been very critical of uh, are higher up in the rankings. They're still not at all moving fast enough, but they are doing uh, better. So for example, Arizona Public Service, very problematic in many ways. They're scoring a 34. I wouldn't say that's great, but it's certainly better than a zero. And I'm hopeful that given the announcement uh, in December that the Arizona Corporation Commission is going forward with a 100% clean electricity goal, that we'll start to see Arizona Public Service, um, you know, move up the rankings here and do better. Because here's the thing, we're not like naming and shaming here for the sake of that. I don't get joy from seeing the electric utility industry, you know, have challenges. I want the electric utility industry to come along and make progress. And I think they have a lot of potential to do it. So, um, you know, everybody can move up the rankings. This We're not trying to fail three quarters of the class, so to speak. <laughs> you just got to put the work in to improve your grade. Yeah. And the, the tragedy, of course, is that the customers pay. The customers pay both on their bills and with their health. And so I think some of the regulators are getting smarter about this and understanding that you know, their their obligation is as much to the customers as it is to the utility. Um, but one of the questions I have about the policy, it's one of those like, did they jump or were they pushed um, on the on the utilities that are setting goals in the states that are doing better? Is that because the state has put into place goals that then the utility has to follow? Yeah, well, I just want to really underline your first point, Catherine. It is so spot on. When we talk about these uneconomic coal plants, these coal plants that could be replaced tomorrow by a wind energy project and literally save customers money, you know, that's sticking consumers with the bill. And there have been really fascinating reports by groups like Energy Innovation uh, looking at the Southeast and how if there were market pressure on those coal plants to shut down, there'd be like $3.5 billion of annual savings is I think the number they came up with. So, wow, these are really big costs. Um, And in terms of where the progress is coming from, 
I think it's a lot of external pressure, whether that's like activist groups, uh, reports like this, um, you know, legislators passing renewable portfolio standards or clean electricity standards. I think that that's where a lot of this started. But I do be think I, I do think that it is starting to come internally from the industry themselves. And that is the outcome that I want here. I, I sort of see the electric utility industry as a Goliath that could take on another Goliath called the oil industry and um, become real partners in the transition. And, and why do I say that? Well, if we take electrification seriously, if we say we're going to have electric vehicles, we're going to electrify buildings, we're going to run our economy on clean electricity, guess what? That is the biggest opportunity for the electric utility industry in more than a century. So I think that some people in the industry are starting to wake up and could become allies of of the clean energy transition. The shocking thing for me and like the the company I'd love to dig into just briefly is Duke Energy. You're talking about a company that was part of US CAP, right? That tried to pass the cap and trade bill. The late Jim Rogers, you know, was like very vocal and getting awards every six months from every environmental organization of how awesome he was. And then when you think about their legacy today, your report is quite damning at a time when North Carolina is one of the largest solar markets in the country, right? So when you think about we've had solar people run for Congress in North Carolina, right? You have a Democratic governor there. And, you know, I just think that we're like part of this for me is trying to understand how we actually separate signal from noise, because there's just so much noise and all these press releases and all these articles that praise this group and this action and this thing. But then in the end, you're like, wow, like things really haven't gotten that much better in Duke Energy's territory. Well, I really agree with you. Obviously, this is the takeaway of the report. Um, we actually have a whole case study of Duke Energy. If you download the report and we dig into all their subsidiaries that we are studying and, you know, you look at, for example, Duke Energy Carolinas, they are only committed to retiring 2% of their coal by 2030. If you look at Duke Energy Florida, it's 0%, right? Like, and, and that's what the report is really trying to do. It's trying to say we have to have the metrics that matter. And the metrics that matter are when are you retiring coal? Are you going to stop building and proposing new gas? And what is your plan for massively scaling up clean energy? And, and I'll say, look, this doesn't even just apply to the U.S. electric utility industry. Let's think about Germany for a second here, right? Germany did a lot of the the third category, building a lot of new clean energy. But what is their plan to phase out coal? It's 2038. Well, that is not acceptable. So you're right. We have to have the right metrics and we got to hold companies accountable. But I think that as we get this message clearer and clearer and and we hold companies accountable, then they, they may start to shift and actually come to the table and negotiate and, and figure out, for example, how are they going to retire this coal? I have heard from somebody in the industry recently that they would like many utilities to get the coal off their balance sheets, and they don't know how to do it. So one of the things that we need to be focusing on is, okay, how do we get rid of this coal in the system? How do we make that transition work? So that's where the optimism comes from. It's not Pollyannaism, you know, or Pollyanna-ish, whatever the word is. It, you know, I write a lot of critical things about utilities, but there's a little part of me that's genuinely hopeful that there could be a big change this year. Yeah, so there are a bunch of things going on here. One is that like a lot of these coal plants are just 
not economic. They're operating out of the market. So the markets are taking care of a lot of this stuff. And we do, as Leah suggested, need to figure out a way to help them shut down. And I think shining a light which Leah's doing on what they're doing is really, really important. And you'll see yesterday, Duke announced shutting down another coal unit early because they said it wasn't operating economically. Well, it hasn't been for a while. But, you know, I think shining a light Maybe on their this score is really will important. go up, right, Catherine? Maybe they'll there get a better go. grade. It they'll was, get an it, F plus. Don't get your hopes up. It was like 170 megawatts. So let's not let's not It was not over like, 200. You know. It was almost 300. But I, I mean, I, I think you need to shine a light on it. I think we also need to give them new modeling tools for their capital expansion and all of their IRP uh, proceedings and have them stick to them so that they're looking at things in a, in like a system-wide way. So they're looking as much on the distribution and customer side as they are on the transmission side for their solutions. And and the markets will take care of it in a lot of ways as, the, as it's happening now. Uh, to your point, Catherine, Morgan Stanley just came out with a report saying that all coal will be shut down by 2033 yesterday. So, I mean, that's interesting. But I, I, I guess I just, all, all I'm saying is that I think that the evidence is on the side of the macro trend, but there also is active fighting against this, right? And I think that shining a light is interesting, but I think we have to be clear about the fact that they have acknowledged an entrenched power that by which they are actually taking all this criticism and pressure and somehow like getting away with not not changing right and so like i, I mean i i do think we need different tools like pressure just and shining a light on stuff is not working and we need the political will to make them change so leah final question on this when you see a utility issue a press release with some climate target from 2035 to 2050, what needs to be in it to get the proverbial Leah Stokes stamp of approval? Like what, what, what can people read into it that we can actually feel like they're doing something? Real commitments to retire coal by 2030, if not earlier. Real commitments to stop building new gas. You know, I, I don't want to see all these new gas plants going through IRP processes when you're claiming that you're going to be carbon neutral by, you know, 2040 or something. And procurement of renewables at the pace and scale that's necessary. Those are really the things we got to look for. And what I think is so great about this report is that we can update this as we go forward and companies can improve. And I think that anybody who's interested in this report, there's actually a dashboard that you can go to. If you go to the Sierra Club website and you look for uh, the Dirty Truth report, um, you can actually go to this dashboard and look up your own utility and get all the statistics on it. And I think that, you know, we can keep updating this information over time and hopefully Hopefully utilities will start to realize, okay, we are being watched. We got to start doing the right thing and it's time to change. A quick word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables around the world. In 2020 alone, even with the pandemic, SunGrow deployed five gigawatts of inverters to North America. In the last year, SunGrow joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. Beyond ensuring its factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has also invested in using electric buses to move its staff around facilities in China, earning China's national standard for green factories. Even amongst the pandemic, SunGrow has been able to bring innovative solutions to the market. Recently, SunGrow rolled out a new 3.6 megawatt outdoor central inverter, a flexible option for standalone solar projects and solar plus storage. To learn more, 
about SunGrow's cutting-edge technologies, visit sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by SeaPower. Look, it's been a really difficult, chaotic year. It's going to be another strange year, likely. And if you are in charge of energy spend in your organization, you've got a lot of uncertainty ahead of you. That's why SeaPower and their team of energy experts are back with a webinar series aimed to help organizations make sense of the chaos and optimize energy use and energy spend in 2021. This hour-long webinar series features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to reduce energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. 2020 is finally behind us, but 2021 poses its own set of energy management challenges. SeaPower in its 2021 demand side webinar series is here to help. Don't miss out. Visit the seapowerway.com slash 2021 to register or follow that link in the show notes. Okay, that was a clear articulation of the problem that still exists in the utility sector. Let's go to a potential solution. You've got another report out that is publishing today. Your co-authors are Sam Ricketts, Olivia Quinn, Narayan Subramarian, and Bracken Hendricks. And one in three Americans live in a place that is targeting 100% carbon-free power now. But how do we scale it up to a national level? That comes from a clean energy standard. We have been talking about a national renewable portfolio standard or clean energy standard since I think the 90s. Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a long, long process. But all of a sudden, we do have new political pieces in place that make this more realistic. So a couple of things in this new report you wrote. One is what pieces need to be in place for us to get a clean energy standard through and what would be the impact. And when we talk about impact, we're not just talking about states that are not under a clean energy standard, but when we apply that standard, how are we doing it in a way that satisfies the environmental justice aims of the Biden administration, targets uh, underserved communities with clean energy investments? And that's a new piece of the policymaking conversation around a CES. So why this focus on a CES now, Leah? Why'd you write this report? Well, for those of us who remember uh, our president, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, they campaign and won on a target for 100% clean electricity by 2035. That is a really transformative idea. And, you know, our podcast, A Matter of Degrees, did a whole episode on this. I think it's called An Electric Number 2035, and it's about this target. And it, it really is amazingly exciting. And so... Starting last summer, while this was happening, once um, then-candidate uh, Joe Biden adopted this plan, myself and Narayan and Sam Ricketts, Narayan Subramanian and Sam Ricketts um, and others, Bracken Hendricks, Olivia Quinn, we started to ask ourselves, okay, if we were going to pass a clean electricity standard, how could we do it? And so in this report, we outline how Congress can act. And of course, they can act uh, through regular order if the filibuster doesn't exist to pass a clean electricity standard. But one of the key contributions that we made here was figuring out how we can do this policy through budget reconciliation, because that is not an excuse for inaction. We can pass a national clean electricity standard through a budget reconciliation process. And given the outcome on January 5th, it's becoming increasingly clear that we're going to have another um, opportunity to use budget reconciliation probably in the spring and almost certainly focused on climate and clean energy and building the clean energy economy. So we can do this. We must do this. It's really popular. And we make the case for uh, why we're going to do this. Catherine, what on earth is budget reconciliation? (laughs) 
Oh, Lordy. Everybody's got their themselves wrapped around the budget reconciliation <laughs> axle right now. It is, it's it's a means for just passing a budget and um, anything that's in it has to either have budget implications um, or increase the budget or decrease the budget. Pu- public policy is not allowed to be in it. And there's this bird rule that you have to try to get through the bird's nest uh, in statute, which basically is the parliamentarian deciding if something is able to be in a reconciliation bill or not. It I'm sometimes really is capricious. <laughs> like it's Well, that's because it is, and it's not clear cut. So I think a lot of folks, and very smartly, Leah has looked at like a lot of different scenarios for how could you get make this work. In the end, someone could raise, a senator could raise a point of order, which would say, you know, this thing shouldn't be in a reconciliation bill. And the parliamentarian, who is not an elected official, would be able to say um, yes or no, and could just say no. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a really important exercise. I think people are trying to figure out how to make a lot of things fit into reconciliation uh, without running afoul of these parliamentary procedures. Um, it is a, it's a bit of an art. Um, and at the, in the end, there's only one person that has control over the situation, unfortunately. So, so Leah, why are you focused on this this budget process? I mean, what like how can you squeeze it into the process, and um, what's the likelihood? Well, I think we have a lot of momentum behind us for a clean electricity standard to pass this year as part of budget reconciliation. The thing is that the Republicans did not pass uh, a budget reconciliation bill last year, which means that they're going to use the fiscal year 20 bill to do the COVID stimulus in the coming weeks and months. And then they're going to use the fiscal year 21 to do Biden's Build Back Better agenda, which is his clean energy and climate and jobs and economic justice agenda. And so um, a really key part of his agenda is getting to 100% clean electricity by 2035. And we show in this report just how popular that is, how much it's a winning issue. And the the way the policy can be designed, particularly through budget reconciliation, has some benefits because we can put more of the costs, the marginal costs of the transition onto the government balance sheets as opposed to onto consumers through increasing electricity costs, let's say. So I think there's actually some benefits. And in the report, we come up with three main options for how you can do it through budget reconciliation and three kind of alternates, uh, you know, that are, are close to a CES, but not quite exactly a CES. Um, they're, they're everything from, you know, creating an on the books credit system that flows through the federal government that basically has uh, zero emissions electricity credit, ZEX, kind of like Rex, uh, f- on the government balance sheets and companies are either buying or selling them to and from the federal government. There's also an auction-based system that could work. Um, similar to what's being done in New York State. Um, And then there's other ideas, too, like giving block grants to states who are making progress on clean energy at the pace that's necessary. So we outline a lot of creative ways to think about this, and um, it's just really important to remind senators that this is something that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ran and won on, and it's got to be at the top of the agenda uh, for our climate policy this year. 
Yeah, a couple of things I would just highlight on the political front. One is that with this COVID bill, as Leah says, that's going to go first, we're going to be able to see what makes it through the pr- the process. So we'll kind of be able to see what the parliamentarian, the ever powerful parliamentarian decides on different provisions that are in that bill. So it'll kind of give us a sense for what might make it in. And that's, that's good because it's a little bit of a learning process. The other thing is that just because it's in reconciliation doesn't mean it can't be by partisan. So anybody can vote for this provision. It doesn't have to be um, partisan unless, you know, unless it's decided from by one party or another that it will be. But the other thing is, of course, if you do have only the Democrats voting, then you have to make sure you entire hold all of those Democrats together. So all 50, including very moderate ones, uh, so that then um, Vice President Harris can break the tie if there is if there are all Republicans on the other side voting against it. But I think the good news in that is that you can structure something, as Leah alluded to, that really doesn't just force an action on states that are lagging, but also provides them with an ability to benefit. And that is really important for those states that are in the middle of a pretty serious energy transition away from coal. So if if you don't mind, I'd love to get into a couple of details here. But maybe first, uh, acknowledge that the parliamentarian's name is Elizabeth McDonough, and was installed by uh, Harry Reid, so um, the first woman parliamentarian. Um, I'm curious, so from your perspective, um, what would be the cost of the ZREC program, right? Because presumably, like, we actually believe that that this is actually going to save money, right? So in some ways, any money that we're transferring over there either is negated by some sort of countervailing payment by the people who have to buy Zrex, or is um, provided by the federal government to the utilities as a way to, of buying their you know, love here. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there are costs in the transition for utilities. We know that there's massive savings in the transition for customers, and that's before we even think about health impacts or climate impacts. Just straight up customer bills will go down if we do this transition right, and we know that from the 2035 report, amongst many other um, studies. So we know that, but just because there's customer savings doesn't mean that it's easy necessarily for the utilities, right? And so we have to find ways to help utilities get coal debt off their balance sheets to help them finance uh, this transition to make it uh, exciting for them to do this. And so, you know, one of the challenges, as you, Jigarno, perhaps more than anybody else, with the current way that we're incentivizing uh, action is is that we're doing it through tax credits. And tax credits have a lot of limitations in terms of who can use them, how many you can use in a given year, given the scale of available financing for it. Um, and so I think moving towards more of a grant-based system, which is how this um, ZEC program could work, right? Basically, when you get a ZEC, there's some money that flows alongside it. Uh, I think that that might be a way to finance the transition and have a lot more actors participate than than even for tax credits. And of course, the other challenge with tax credits is that it's hard to put labor standards in the tax credits. And so there can be other benefits that we might be able to more easily put into a system where it's more like a grant closer to the 1603 grants program under the Recovery Act. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes tons of sense. And then like an onion, there's a lot of layers here. The other thing I wanted to ask is most people who are familiar with renewable portfolio standards and the REC programs that go along with that, 
there's a lot of complexity at the state level around technologies and tier one and tier two recs and all that stuff. In this proposal, it seems like all of the Z recs are viewed as the same, um, as long as it's a zero emission uh, qualified technology. But you're not like, you know, providing triple recs for some technologies and double recs for others or whatever. No, I mean the thing is that you can't get you can't give extra credits if you want to hit a hundred, right? right? That's that's the challenge <laughs> with the math. Now there are lots of other nuances to the some of the ideas that we have here. So, for example, we talk about more uh, regional areas where you would be eligible to get a ZAC, right? So you can't just be getting power from way out of state and somehow using that to qualify for. Uh, your uh, renewable energy requirements in a given year, that you really need to be getting it within a boundaries where it's actually deliverable. And I think that's important because we need the clean energy transition to be real everywhere. We need it to be real everywhere for jobs, and we also need it to be real everywhere for clean air and justice. And so that's one of the things that we talk about a bunch in the report. And we, But we do also talk about how, as part of the requirements, or maybe in an auction, you could design some of these Zacks to be uh, have premiums in terms of the amount that they pay out. So maybe there's a premium if you're doing projects in disadvantaged uh, communities, like communities in transition or uh, communities that have historically hosted uh, coal plants or other dirty fossil fuel infrastructure. There could also be project there could also be additional payments for uh, if it's a distributed generation project there could be additional payments if it's a new technology like offshore wind because let's say we use an auction system right we want to make sure that all technologies can compete and actually build out projects and of course wind and solar onshore uh, wind and and solar have come down so much in price that they'll be more competitive in that kind of an auction but we know there's lots of benefits to offshore wind too so there's the policy can be designed in different ways to meet different goals, ultimately. Um, And there's a tension there, as Catherine might point out, where the more we're layering on the policy within the legislation, the harder it might be to pass through reconciliation. So some of these things might be um, discretion to the actual implementing agency as opposed to written into the law. And I love that you uh, gave one of the implementation agencies as FERC, because I think FERC could do a lot with this. I think it would be a really smart move. I would just um, want to make sure that you know we really want this to get in reconciliation. But if it doesn't, just realize that all of this work, I think Leah knows this, is not for naught. We'll have other opportunities for reconciliation. But also, we're going to get a lot of stuff done in some way, and it won't be nothing. But we also would be really smart to try to start talking about this in a real, really smart way through the committee processes in what you would call regular order, as Leah mentioned, and have hearings, talk about this, tell stories, let bring in those members of Congress and senators that wouldn't normally be supportive and start showing them how something like this would be really economically beneficial to their constituents. And I think having that conversation, whether or not this gets into a reconciliation package, is really important for our long-term policy goals. Yeah, I think that's so spot on. And one of the things we talk about in this report is the millions of jobs that this will create, right? Like, And that's not from some inflated report. It's from the Princeton Net Zero Americas Project, which, you know, 
received money from the fossil fuel industry. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean, it's a very credible report. It's not going to be overinflating clean energy jobs, right? So if they're saying it's millions of jobs, I think that that's a very real estimate. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity here. And I, I think we are going to get it in a reconciliation bill this spring. I'm certainly going to work my butt off to make that happen. And I would encourage anybody who's listening, who's feeling enthusiastic about this idea to get involved and see what they can do, whether they're in the utility industry, you know, whether they're at an advocacy organization, whether they're at a think tank, whether they work for a legislator or they're a legislator themselves. You know, we can all play a role in trying to make this climate package this spring as strong as possible, because this is the first shot we have had in a more than a decade. And we better go big. Well, a fantastic one-two punch of reports that you and your co-authors put together. We'll put those in the show notes. Leah Stokes is a professor at UC Santa Barbara. She is also the co-host of A Matter of Degrees, a podcast that we produce with her and Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. Dr. Stokes, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Oh, it's always so fun to come on The Energy Gang. What a treat. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's go to our last topic, General Motors. GM CEO Mary Barra is doing donuts in the parking lot. When Trump took the White House, she was one of the first executives to support his attempts to roll back fuel standards. But when it was clear the power had shifted in Washington, she spun the car around. Eight days after Joe Biden was sworn in as president, GM said that by 2035, it will sell only zero emissions vehicles. That's just 14 years from now. The company plans to spend $27 billion over the next five years to introduce 30 electric vehicles. And I don't know about you two, but I have gone on my Twitter feed a bunch the last few days, and I've seen GM ads for its electrification efforts. So, like, they're putting money into convincing consumers that this is the direction they're headed. Political cynicism over GM's posturing aside, this is a very big deal. The lead on the New York Times story said... Quote, the days of the internal combustion engine are numbered. So are they? And do we think GM will make this happen? Look, the transitions can be super tough. And we're going to talk about one of those transitions at Volkswagen. Volkswagen said last year it would spend $88 billion on electric vehicles over the next five years, but it's running into real problems, according to fantastic reporting from the Wall Street Journal. Early owners reported hundreds of software bugs in the company's new electric model, the ID3. It had to be delayed. And these Traditional car companies are challenging themselves because they have to be new types of companies, um, you know, software development companies in essence. So, Catherine, how big of a deal is this announcement by Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors? It was so big that Will Ferrell did an ad for her. It was very clever and cute. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it wasn't Joe Biden's election that made GM made this make this announcement. It was China and the EU's policy on the global market on electric vehicles that made that decision for her. I mean, we're behind, except for Tesla, and everybody's behind Tesla. Uh, we're behind uh, in our OEMs. And I think she has some catch up work to do. VW is, I think, is a totally different matter because they will come back. They'll be fine. They, As my friends Gerard uh, Reed and Laurent Segalin said, they're VW is going to be a fast follower to Tesla. Um, and they're good engineers. Germans are good engineers generally, and they love solving these issues. So uh, they need to get the software right, but the cars are going to be great. Jigger, what do you make of this GM announcement? A pure political calculation or a real meaningful change inside the company? 
or both? Well, I think it's both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think as Catherine said, they were kind of forced into it and then, you know, decided to show leadership out of it. So, you know, that's kudos to Mary Barra. I think about that. Like, I, you know, one of the things that I found confusing, though, is that, um, you know, people have been asking her to clarify whether she really meant passenger cars versus trucks and she didn't clarify so like so i think i'm still confused about you know because since most americans want to buy suvs and pickup trucks etc like she didn't give a full-throated and clear clarification on that so i think we should like uh find out more there um you know i've been in and around the auto industry for a very long time and um one of the things that you find uh when you do that i went to the university of illinois and almost all of my classmates in mechanical engineering went to go work in Detroit, and many of them are still there, um, is that they are truly internal combustion engine people, right? Like they're not car people. In the same way that people are like, you're like, oh no, it's like a clothing designer. They can work in cotton and polyester and Chanel, whatever, like all the different like fabrics. That's not how an auto company works. An auto company actually differentiates itself based on like the amount of muscle it can put into the into the car, right? And so, so like, and when you look at the Japanese auto companies, they were like lawnmower companies. Like they, their whole, the way that they got into cars where they were engine companies who made engines for like lawnmowers, like Honda, and then they got into cars, right? And so at the core of their being, they became internal combustion engine people, right? And then they got good at the auto manufacturing around it, right? And so, so it is not surprising to me that from a cultural perspective, they have a really, really hard time making the transition from something that is completely and utterly mature technology, electric motors and batteries. Yes, batteries will get better, but they are mature technologies, right? And the only differentiation you really have is around software. So it's not surprising to me that the auto industry is like, what? We have to differentiate ourselves around software? That seems ludicrous, right? And so, like, I get it. I get it. They've been differentiating themselves about with, like, lubricants and, like, premium gasoline and, like, octane and all that crap, right? And so this is a huge change for the auto industry and one that will be very difficult for them to make. Well, you're highlighting something very important, Jigger, that speaks to Volkswagen's experience, and that is these auto manufacturers have become integrators of components. Uh, They are buying components across the supply chain and integrating them in their own operations. And now they have to have their own internal software development organizations. Uh, Many of their software developers are spread out across different divisions within the company. And the electric car is mostly about software and controls. So that's a very different skill set inside these auto manufacturers that they are working through right now. And is why Volkswagen had a number of problems with the rollout of the ID3. um, And they're still working through those problems. That's not to say that they can't be overcome. Yeah. One thing I would say is that I would make a bet that like Apple's partnership with Kia is probably more likely to be successful because Apple will bring the software components to this than these automakers doing it in-house. I mean, it, it really is that big of a change. But the other piece of this, remember, is that the auto industry has always partnered with the oil industry to get the rest of the supply chain in place, right? There's 168,000 gas stations in the United States, and they're largely, you know, uh, 
supported by the oil industry, not by the auto industry. It's not like the auto industry has its own branded, you know, Ford and GM gas stations and or other things, right? And so they sort of say, well, our engines will be formulated to run off of this person's fuel. So now the question becomes, do they actually take more responsibility than they have in the past for the infrastructure? Clearly, Tesla made its choice. Tesla said, we are going to have to build all of these stations, and they are beautifully sited. I mean, to the point where you really can go almost to any place in the United States and, you know, make sure that your Tesla is full of uh, level three, you know, electrons. Uh, but it's not clear to me whether the automakers are going to replicate that. And you you might actually see them try to punt it, you know, to the Biden administration and have them actually, you know, do this rollout. Catherine, on the charging infrastructure piece, what needs to be in place to make Volkswagen and GM successful so that these cars are operating out in a real world environment? Well, there have to be a whole host of policies and money, um, an assignment of who's doing what, and some of that's going to be competitive. But just to to step into what the EU is doing. So the EU Green Deal has given 70 companies 5 billion US dollars. And this includes Tesla building a factory outside of Berlin uh, to make this this a reality. And they put into place carbon limits, city bans, pollution restrictions, energy insecurity because of oil issues, desire to own a new technology. They're just all these different factors that that are coming about in the EU and in China. And there is just a lot of government intervention. So we're not typically like that um, in our big industries, uh, but I could see that happening in this new administration and a desire to really get something done is like, let's let the government put some real money to it and make sure that EVs are accessible all over the country. Do it. I say do it, right? There's a lot of trepidation about giving big auto manufacturers a lot of money. Um, Of course, we should be supporting some of these startups. But like, let's dump a bunch of money into these big companies because these are the logistics companies that can actually make it happen. And actually, just going back to a previous point that you made, Jigger, you talked about Apple. I mean, Apple experimented with building an electric car. Dyson, the vacuum manufacturer and battery manufacturer, experimented with an electric car. And these companies couldn't make it work because building an automobile, even if you're integrating other opponents, components is still very difficult. So these are the companies that need a lot of the assistance to make this electric transition happen a lot faster. Yeah, but remember, there's another person in the mix, right, that wants this money, right? And that's the electric utilities. They'd love a bunch of money to build out all of this infrastructure and be and replace the position that the oil companies have been for a long time, right? So I actually don't think it's clear on how this is going to happen. And I do think that there's a level of planning that's going to be required uh, to make this work. And I just think that this is going to get far messier than, you know, than GM's announcement portents, right? I mean, even the dealers, like a lot of dealers in the United States are anti-electric vehicles because they make all their money on service and they don't see how they're going to make money on servicing electric vehicles. So, I mean, how is that going to work? Tesla avoided it by just not having dealers. But, you know, for these auto companies, they have so many legacy issues that they have to work through. And and so it's not, you know, it's not unlike my my, you know, point of view on the oil companies, which is, God, I wish them the very best of luck. 
but this is like a total uphill climb for them. Yeah, I just the dealership issue is is mind boggling to me because I feel like a lot of people are buying their cars online anyway or doing a lot of their research online anyway before they ever get to the dealership. So I feel like the dealership is in is it an inflection point at any rate, no matter which way they go? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I hear you, Catherine, and the dealership stuff, remember, is getting played out at the state level, right? Tesla continues to get blocked in terms of becoming a dealer or selling their cars in some states, etc. So, so I, I mean, I just think a lot of that stuff is going to work itself out. It, it just, just the sheer amount of shifting on the tectonic plates of our entire economy is is in the balance. The one other point I would make, and we've made it before when we talked about Nikola, is that electric vehicles do not mean lithium-ion batteries only, right? And so electric vehicles could easily be series hybrids with um, fuel cells and hydrogen. And I think you saw that big announcement that Plug Power had, uh, you know, this last week. And so, like, so I think that there are um, a number of ways for this thing to go. And it's quite surprising to me that we actually don't have a roadmap document that I can download from, you know, some trade association or other thing to sort of say, well, here's the likely pathway this is going to go. It does, it really does feel like a free-for-all. I'm surprised we haven't seen more acquisitions in this space of the legacy auto manufacturers scooping up some of these startups that are developing pretty cool cars. Well, they're worth too much money with SPACs on the public <laughs> market. So I don't know that the auto companies can afford them anymore. <laughs> All right, let's go to our free electrons. Catherine, what's your free electron this week? So this feeds directly from our just our last conversation, which is that ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, just released a report yesterday called the State Transportation Electrification Scorecard. And they looked at how were states deploying EVs and infrastructure and how are they doing? And they have a map that shows which states are ranked. So a bunch of states aren't even ranked because they haven't done anything. But, you know, the number one state, of course, is California. And in the top five are New York, District Columbia, Maryland, and Massachusetts. And they ranked them based on a set of criteria, which included their charging infrastructure, planning and goal setting, um, incentives for EV deployment, transportation system efficiency, so maximizing emission reductions and improving accessibility, electric grid optimization, it's gonna be really important and brings in that utility piece, EV equity, you know, are, is this available to everyone? And then transportation electrification outcomes. So what are the metrics that they're using to track it? So it's a pretty good report. It just came out. And I think it gives us a lot more information about what's actually happening out there. Jigger, what's your free electron? So, you know, for those of us who have followed the polar vortexes that have uh, hit our nation over the past few years, we're getting another one next week. Uh, where a big polar vortex is coming down through Minnesota and Chicago, expected to get to negative 20 to negative 30 degrees with the wind chill. And I think this just highlights how important weatherization is in our country. And, you know, the Biden administration, uh, Biden candidacy uh, promoted 2 million homes to be weatherized compared to 1.2 million that were weatherized under Obama. Um, my sense is that this is going to... Uh, focus a spotlight on how important that policy is. And so for all of you listeners out there, I think be watching um, and reading um, because I think that this is going to create a moment by which we might actually tackle this. Speaking of freezing cold weather, um, there was a mystery 
that has long stood since 1959 when nine hikers went uh, missing in the Datlyov Pass in Russia, and no one could figure out what happened. The hikers were found with their tongues missing, their their clothes off, like they were mangled, and there were lots of conspiracy theories about alien abduction and strange things happening to them, but experts long assumed that it was a an avalanche, and they didn't really have the ability to figure out if it was an avalanche until... Disney's Frozen came out, which I know is one of your son's favorite <laughs> movies, Jigger. And the animation in Disney's Frozen was so good that they, the researchers were able to um, go to the folks at Disney and say, can we use your animation tools to try to model how an avalanche might have struck these hikers? And they did. And they kind of figured out it was a certain type of avalanche. And they have very high confidence that that it was an avalanche that killed these hikers, all thanks to the folks at Disney who animated Frozen. So the question is, is Chris Clack, the modeler who we talked about before, going to use his supercomputer system to create Frozen 3? Yes. (laughs) Well, my son is already hoping for Frozen 9. So I think there's a lot of uh, (laughs) modelers that will have a job here if uh, this goes forward. Well, this one popped up into my news this morning and I just had to share it. I think that's going to do it for us, folks. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Our senior editor is Ingrid Lobet. Thanks to all the new listeners we've gotten over the last few weeks. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon. And now for some bonus content. As we head into 2021, we're looking at the dramatic ways that COVID has accelerated the energy transition. And that brings us to Sara Kuyala. She's the head of business development at Vertzilla. She's been thinking about the future of our energy systems for the past 12 years, and the rapid pace of change has kept her on her toes. So when you look in the crystal ball, are you often surprised by what you see? Every day. There's, uh, you know, this energy transition is is new and it's uh, progressing with such a fast speed. Change is a constant for Sara, but the COVID-19 crisis spurred an unprecedented shift in energy markets. And of course, everybody's crystal ball changed when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. When that started to play out and demand changed and countries eventually started putting policies in place to react to the economic calamity. What kind of questions were you starting to ask? Yeah, I think a lot of people were, were asking asking themselves and each other a lot of questions uh, on this new, new situation. She focused on one big question. You know, considering the, the, the terrible situation we are in, what, what can we take as a silver lining and, and develop our energy systems are? Uh, going forward to to make them make them better and more resilient in the future. So Sara and her team at Vertzilla started looking closer at that silver lining. They wanted to know how and if different countries' energy stimulus money could be used to support a clean energy transition. One of the one of the first analyses we did uh, was to estimate if what would be the impact 
uh, if the um, U.S. fossil fuel stimulus was spent dollar dollar on dollar on 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 renewable energy investments, and we actually found out uh, that uh, this uh, money would would go go beyond having about hundred gigawatts of new renewable energy, and it would create something like hundred and seventy five percent more jobs uh, than if these investments uh, were spent on kind of traditional. Uh, inflexible energy assets. In the first U.S. stimulus last year, only 30% was allocated to clean energy, not enough to rebuild the country's entire energy system, of course. But how much money would it take to actually create a carbon-neutral system in the near future? We calculated that the capacity expenses uh, required to make the whole United States to run on zero-carbon energy sources would cost somewhere around $1.7 trillion dollars. And that actually well within uh, the budgets that have also been discussed uh, in in the United States on on the capital expenses needed for that uh, price level. A newer, cleaner, carbon-neutral electricity system would require a big capital expenditure, but it comes with lower overall system costs. There are no fuel costs associated with battery energy storage. And yes, we do need some flexible gas power plants in the systems, but But in the final renewable energy systems, those will also run on synthetic fuels that were produced with wind and solar energy. So if we think about this future energy mix, uh, most of this uh, expenditure comes from the capex. What do you hope that decision makers take away from these findings as they start allocating and continue to allocate tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into this sector? I think one big finding that we have done in in our team when uh, when modeling, planning, optimizing future energy systems is that the all the technologies are available uh, to make the energy transition towards 100% renewable energy a reality. Uh, before uh, the energy transition was was seen and as an environmental topic, uh, and and then then also an economic topic. Now we see that the renewable energy is it's both available and it's also very cost effective. And and when our team does the analysis, we look into the system view and, and the flexibility uh, that is needed alongside with this renewable energy. It makes from the system cost optimization level also economic sense. So so the direction uh, direction is clear and the direction will be feasible for governments. In the midst of every crisis lies great opportunity. Sara uses this Albert Einstein quote to identify what the pandemic means for the energy transition. It guides her work. It's how she sees this moment as an opportunity to rebuild an energy system that is clean, resilient, flexible, and doable. Sara and her team at Vertzilla have made their Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy available to everyone on Vertzilla's website. You can go there and see all kinds of data and analysis about energy markets in a post-COVID world. And maybe you'll find some surprises too. Check out the Atlas and see your optimal path at vertsilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A, vertsilla.com slash atlas.